0: This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Sudebaker, and Nina Power. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to do a YouTube video entitled Terry Eagleton in Conversation with Roger Scruton. And we're going to talk about high culture. Helen, kick us off.
1: I decided actually not to talk about the uh, Terry Eagleton versus Roger Scruton perspective. I would very much be on the Terry Eagleton side. I like Terry Eagleton a lot. Um, but actually, I was really fascinated by the questions that were asked by the audience, especially um, one very final question and a couple of statements. And this was uh, recorded in 2012. Obviously, things have changed uh, recently. And I thought that this comment and the response uh, to the comment really said something um, interesting that I want to analyse here. I'm not sure how much hip-hop you would listen to. It sounded like you only listened to music by dead white men. Yes, that's what you've been taught to say, but that's a total cliche. The first statement is indicative of the problem with liberal thinking. It exposes how liberalism precisely fails at being political. The second statement is ironic, given the position of its speaker, uh, given that the position of its speaker generates the very problems embodied by the speaker of the first. Liberalism fails to be political because it doesn't take into account The fact that humans experience contradiction at the level of their own subjectivity. Every human interaction, therefore, every human system, every aspect of human life is marked by it. Liberalism is a system of thought that shields our gaze from the contradiction and lack that underpin our world and make us human. There will be no world without contradiction. There will be no human subjectivity without lack. These two knots are the most generative powers in our universe. Totality, wholeness cannot make. They are done. They are closed. Lack and contradiction generate everything because they are empty and open. At first blush, lack and contradiction appear to indicate both nothingness and emptiness. This makes them unappetizing. Their power and generativity make them traumatic to confront and address. We tend to prefer to think that life is meaningful in its essence, that we derive from some meaningful source, that there are wholenesses that we can fall back on, that someone or something is responsible for us, that there is a divine driving hand guiding the whole. But contradiction erupts everywhere, and so we cannot avoid it. The more we repress it, the more it returns. But we convince ourselves that we can avoid it, that we can overcome it, that through mere aesthetic arrangement we can blot it out for good. Politically speaking, or rather unpolitically speaking, we shield our gaze from the ine- inevitable pesky eruptions of intractable contradiction within our societal structures by casting them into contingent, corrigible oppositions. This way of seeing the world, however, is much more toxic than the apparently anxiety-producing alternative. The demand for oppositional thinking, sustaining as it does the belief that a utopia of wholeness exists on the other side of the horizon that the enemy blots out, aka unblemished market capitalism, creates alienation, exploitation, dissatisfaction, desperation. It justifies the worst treatment of one another and ourselves. On the one hand, it disguises the reality of what we are facing within the systems we create surplus value, for instance, becomes an issue of racialist essence or a moral failing, sustaining and deepening the problem. On the other, it disguises the only thing that unifies us all, lack. Through this way of seeing the world, a shimmer of the political is retained within the imaginary, preventing us from ever confronting, understanding, symbolising, alphabeticizing, digesting and better handling the contradictions that underpin our world. This is the character of identity politics. Like an anorexic whose refusal to eat is an attempt to contain the difficult dynamics of an ambivalent and dissatisfying family life at the level of a symptom, rather than doing the much more tragic, upsetting, impossible and therefore productive work of verbalising and symbolising those problems, identity politics, now no longer so much woke as a smug, misguided so-called leftism, retain our gaze away from the repressed contradictions of our difficult, ambivalent economic system, emerging as it does from a distorted, ambivalent, lacking libo, libido, sorry. and it sustains them. Quantum contradictions mark air and water, rocks and rain. Animals embody the contradictions of evolution. The human second birth creates the lack that generates language, creating the experience of contradiction at the level of our own subjectivity. Our current capitalistic system takes the shape of our lacking desire. Its contours, repressions, and contradictions are therefore difficult to envisage because they are ourselves. Well-intentioned commentators, unable to read Marx, who himself understood this, repress these contradictions even further by misrecognizing or ignoring them, decorating them with a veneer of possible emancipation, of worthiness and do-goodery that is cathartic and satisfying, but really no different than the more visible dynamics of the traditional right the identitarian liberal left continues to turn contradiction into opposition. You should listen to fewer middle-aged white men, we hear. More women CEOs, more diverse actors and singers and sports stars, whatever diverse really means. The problem isn't capitalism born out of our lacking subjectivity, it's the patriarchy, idiot. You're a racist. You're a fascist. Your carbon footprint is too big. She took a first class flight. That person liked to tweet by someone who once said something that touched on the real problems of our political economy in a way that made me feel uncomfortable. Moral discipline is not politics. Identity politics are not universal. They turn the universal of contradiction onto its head towards the particularity of opposition. The only thing we will share is what we don't share. Lack. Politics is the art of the universal, and in order to access that universal, we must dwell within a politics of contradiction and of lack. What makes for good art, I argue, isn't necessarily that it is high or low, that it took a long time or a lot of specialist training to create, although that is very often the case. Rather, what makes for good art is what also makes for good politics. Good art embraces, explores, and tarries with contradiction. When we feel distaste at art that is too political, quote unquote, what we really feel is a distaste with art that is not political enough. It hasn't done the work of leaning right into contradiction and lack. It hovers within its own imposed borders of particularity, of opposition, of moral superiority, of dogmatic castigation. Good art can come from anyone, from anyone who who can speak and who therefore lacks. It can come from a dead white man, it can come from a young woman of colour, or a non-binary person living here or in any country on this earth. Material conditions have a profound effect on who gets to make art at a given time or in a given place. But these material conditions can only be understood, addressed and possibly overcome through a reading of them that takes into its consideration lack and contradiction. And material conditions intertwine with certain factors that generate one's identity and one's subjectival experience. But this doesn't in any way mean that any human of any kind is incapable of doing good art. Old white men aren't incapable of addressing universalist topics, just as young women of a different quote-unquote race aren't, or rather both are just as incapable as each other. If the work touches on the universal of lack, however it does it, whether it is conscious or it is not, it may be a good or great piece of work. The comment made by the last questioner in this debate is indicative that the contemporary liberal media left is no different, I say left quote-unquote, from Roger Scruton. The reason many of us find them so annoying is that they don't know that they aren't, or they can't admit that they aren't, any different. I won't delineate the dynamics of the conservative right as I think they are well known, operating as a liberalism at a register, the problems of which are more constantly, uh, consciously born. But its solutions are similar, disciplining and blaming rather than understanding the dynamics of the market system it refuses to confront. Its failure generates its new turn, the liberal left is an emergent of the market system that the right aligned itself with years ago. It is not an emergent of Marxism. When Jordan Peterson refers to the quote-unquote neo-Marxist postmodernists, he refers to an anarch- anarchistic aspect of his own liberal ideology, a return of its own repressed. In any case, the Titanic continues to slowly sink. And as we sit bewitched watching the quartet play its merry tune, the traditional conservative wants to arrange the chairs in neat horizontal ro- rows, Whilst the liberal leftist wants an apparently freer arrangement, with chairs cast here and there in a cosy way, ensuring children and those we consider to be incompetent at the front, and those we deem naughty, born under an outmoded star somewhere at the back. The problem is, whichever way we fiddle with the furniture, we are all going down.
0: All right. Nina, you're up.
1: Yeah, I suppose certain things I noticed about this
2: dialogue. It's obviously from 2012. And sort of takes place rather before the more uh, fanatical turn, we could say, in the culture wars. And there's something of that gentleness, actually, in the fact that you have a, a left, a, an ostensibly Marxist professor, I mean, self-declared Marxist professor and a conservative RIP Scruton, Um in dialogue, in, in actually quite sympathetic, um, compassionate, at times very witty and, uh, you know, provocative uh, disagreement, some alignments, some you know, misunderstandings uh, and all of those kinds of things. But in a way, the fact that they agree to sit down together and the audience is largely respectful, there's no obvious storming of the stage, Scruton is not uh, covered in milkshake, um, nevertheless points to something that we might wonder uh, has has perhaps been lost in, in some ways. And I, I remember this period after the uh, student protests in the UK. And it, there's a reason why people are talking... Both the speakers and, and the audience are talking about the universities at this point because there is a kind of crisis here and it's a different kind of crisis than the one that we perhaps currently face where one of the, the issues is a kind of um, overspill of the university discourse into popular culture and into politics, um, a risk that is actually flagged up by Eagleton in his initial presentation about the relationship between culture and and politics, where culture has been the attempt to replace religion, he says uh that has somehow failed, but nevertheless has become closer to to politics as such, and then you have a situation in which people are willing to uh die for or kill for culture and and here he's sort of referring, we would think to um particular terrorist gestures based on um actually religion, amongst other things. Nevertheless, it put me in mind of the idea of uh, a woke martyr, whether we will see um uh woke terrorism in our in our future. Certainly we might look at some of the actions of uh Antifa um in relation to BLM and other kinds of protests um, and wonder uh whether the fervor that they exhibit uh is aligned with what uh, Eagleton worries about here. Um, I think partly because and his worry is 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 accurate is because these are no longer based in material analyses, so even a Marxist understanding of literature and culture takes account of not only the person who is producing this work but the economic context precisely that 's the point whether you can read these texts or these pieces as. Um, ideological symptoms, whether these are texts that actually get to the heart of of real social relations or in fact are a mask for them. And this is very vulgar Marxist literary theory of which Eagleton is very much responsible for. And uh, I like the way in particular he's, he's constantly flogging his own work this is the kind of strange symptom he exhibits in his uh, his, his uh, talks, where he's constantly reminding the audience that he's written a book about such and such a topic, and they should immediately go and buy it. Um, I think one of the most fundamental things about this uh, actual debate is it occurred to me um, this question of whether humanity, or the extent to which humanity is transformed in in particular historical transitions. So for Marxists, modernity has to be this grand shift. Whatever we mean by modernity, industrial capitalism, such that there's a kind of transformation in the nature of the the human. Um, in insofar as humanity itself and culture too, therefore, becomes uh, endlessly and permanently historicized and historicizable. Whereas the kind of eternal verities that somebody like Scruton wants to point to have to be, let's say. Um, Outside of those kind of parad- paradigm shifts or those epistemic shifts in uh, the history of humanity, basically, there has to be something in common between the wisdom that we can learn from the ancient Greek philosophers, the Roman uh, you know orators, uh, the Mah- Mahabharata, the you know whatever, whatever classic text of literature or piece of music, there has to be something that ties us to all of those things, by virtue of being human, and Scruton I think quite convincingly makes the point um, that this isn't to do with a national culture, in fact all of these things are from, you know, all over the place if you like um, what unites them is perhaps the refinement and the wisdom that they he, 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 he says, that they convey, and that this is what um, an, an education in culture should consist of, It he, he says it's a, it's a form of wisdom imparted to people. This is Scruton's definition of um, culture and he seeks to characterise Eagleton and the, or the Marxist position as a kind of um, almost like a paranoid and destructive reading of culture that all cu- culture therefore must be read as a kind of symptom of um, you know, bourgeois uh, cover stories or um, or an ignorance of the real social relations, uh, and so on. And and Eagleton actually doesn't go out of his way to particularly defend uh, Marxist culture, right? You'd have thought, for example, he might defend socialist writing. Um, He talks about socialism's ability to conjure up utopias, um, but he doesn't really specifically mention any Marxist works of art or culture, of which there are Indeed, quite a few, and some of which we might want to uh, recommend. He mentions Brecht um, briefly. Um, and there's something quite interesting about that, the lack of specificity in terms of what they're, they're talking about. Scruton makes a great claim for the, uh, the history of music. He says this is the greatest achievement of our civilization: is the history of music. Um, because music mirrors what it is to be human, he says. And again, this is a kind of completely atemporal or, you know, decontextualized understanding. And it's not a surprise in a way that, like Schopenhauer, Scruton chooses music as, in a way, the, high, the highest of the high. Because it's the one that is least um, immediately content-filled, uh, in a certain sense. And this is the argument that's always really been made about the, the power of music. Um, in certain ways and of course it comes back again in the questions at the end about the snobbery regarding, apparent snobbery regarding hip hop um, and they finish on a discussion of jazz and the Frankfurt School's uh, Adorno in particular's uh, reading of the commodification of jazz um, and I suppose there's something that that I, just to, to finish on this strange point that comes up time and time again that appears here in the questions as well which is always this kind of I suppose fear of the other's enjoyment of or the other's lack of enjoyment not of high culture I suppose so let me put it another way like audience members whenever there's a discussion about high culture or culture in general someone will always say but most people don't like Shakespeare and they don't listen to classical music and this is a problem and the other suffers from this problem like there's some either problem of transmissibility or access or you know it might be a material question or it might be simply that um the idea that the working class or the other um doesn't have time or doesn't have the capacity to enjoy high culture and somebody always makes this argument or makes a variation on this argument and i think this is something that's very symptomatic and worth talking about it's a very strange move it's it's like to say the other who is not me, right? Because, of course, I'm the one who does enjoy classical music and uh, Shakespeare and, you know, the European novel and, and so on and so forth and goes to see g- galleries and look at, you know, the history of art. and But there is always this other who somehow is kind of kept away from art, either through their own uh, inadequacies or through material constraints or through this idea that um, art and culture is... Inaccessible, and I've always wondered, and um, maybe this is my 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 final and important well to me question because I think about it a lot if we would say that one on the left one of our questions is this question of redistribution and When we're talking about art and culture, we might put it in the following way. We might say something like everyone deserves beauty or, in fact, everyone needs beauty. This would also be the idea of bread and roses, right? Not just um, something to eat, but also uh, a beautiful life or access to beauty, um, access to art, access to culture. Scruton, in fact, is is paradoxically the one who defends the generality of culture. He says culture, in a way, is everywhere. He suggests that there should be more culture, that that culture is, of course, also all of the things that people do when they are in communion with each other, whether it's going to church or going to a barn dance or um, (coughs) any kind of social ritual, um, anything that bonds or or combines um, enjoyment. And so I suppose... It's, it's about it's about lack. It's about this lack of culture, this supposed lack of culture of the other, the other who, who can't get it or doesn't have it or doesn't want it. Um, and this concern of like the middle class, I suppose, person who wants them to have culture and doesn't know how they're going to get it. Or at least this is the fantasy, which implies that they don't that the other doesn't already have culture um, in some ways or at least doesn't have the right kind of culture. And I suppose I would really like a kind of, and Eagleton doesn't provide this, I suppose, a, a properly Marxist, um, I don't know, analysis of what it would be like f- within the current system to um, to permit the redistribution of beauty, <coughs> I suppose, um, that isn't just a utopian idea about, well, if we all had more free time, you know, we'd be able to... Uh, be, become painters or, you know, that kind of uh, romantic reading of the German ideology, but rather something more practical in the current moment. Um, you know, it is to say beauty is not something to come or art and culture is not something to come, but something that's rather here already and that people are kind of engaged in constantly. Um, but how, if if we were to kind of vivify or enchant, re-enchant the world such that people could imagine other better ways of, of living... Um, how this could be kind of, you know, more widely and more broadly distributed. Um, Yeah, that's
0: it. All right, it's my turn. So I picked this video this week because I think Eagleton and Scruton each make an interesting point in it. Scruton rightly points out that popular culture has fallen into something of an abyss. Sometimes it celebrates individual hedonism. Other times it lapses into nihilism. But at no point does it teach anybody to view life in a larger way, to value anything beyond the pursuit of catharsis it doesn't teach us to find meaningful roles for ourselves instead it deconstructs all roles and encourages us to spend our lives indulging in gluttony lust greed envy and pride a higher kind of culture has been lost eagleton rightly points out that the crucial role uh, the crucial role capitalism plays in instrumentalizing culture and subordinating it to market incentives people need money to pay the bills People come to university to make themselves employable. The university cannot justify itself if it doesn't provide for the financial security of the undergraduate students. Through this mechanism, capitalism dictates what is taught at universities. Universities are increasingly unable to impart high culture on people because high culture has little economic value. Students come to university desperate to make money so that they can live comfortably, and few are ultimately able to depart from that path universities increasingly don't make students aware of alternatives, and the market system doesn't give them enough security to enable them to meaningfully consider those alternatives that are visible to them. The debate ends with Scruton asking Eagleton what the economic alternative to capitalism is, and Eagleton struggling to formulate something compelling. Both Scruton and Eagleton agree that censorship cannot be the solution, that a compelling high culture must be able to criticize elites. But neither Scruton nor Eagleton seems to have engaged very deeply with political economy. When it comes time to propose an alternative way of structuring the culture industry, they hit a wall. Let me see if I can help. Let's start with a small case and see what we can do. In the United States in 2019, before coronavirus, the film industry would standardly raise around $11 billion through box office receipts. Many are now worried that the movie theaters will close and that an important part of American cultural life will die out. What if the federal government set about saving the movie theaters by making the movie theaters free at the point of use? Each year, the government would allocate $11 billion to movie theaters, indexed to inflation. Any American could go see films for free. you just have to pay for the popcorn. The $11 billion would be distributed based on an algorithm available for public scrutiny. This algorithm would reward the most popular theaters, giving the theaters an incentive to compete with one another to attract moviegoers, but it would also cap the amount of money which would be paid out for any particular film. No film could generate more than, let's say, $100 million total in domestic box office receipts, indexed to inflation. Once a film attracts enough people to generate more than $100 million, the revenue added by each additional filmgoer would start to decline so that the film still only generates $100 million in total receipts. The function of this would be to force cinemas to diversify the films on offer. If the cinemas can only make $100 million from the next blockbuster film, the returns on showing blockbusters would diminish. They'd need a larger roster of films, and that would encourage the film industry to make a larger number of smaller pictures. Big superhero movies would have to work within the confines of smaller budgets. The money they'd lose would be redistributed to filmmakers working with small and mid-sized budgets. We'd encourage a renaissance of more thoughtful artistic films, and we'd do it without censoring anybody. The system would also be subject to democratic control. If the public becomes unhappy with the kinds of films it's getting, the algorithm would be available for scrutiny, and the legislature could change it. It could increase or decrease the size of the $11 billion pot to create more jobs in film or prevent the sector from becoming too large, it could raise or lower the 100 million domestic box office cap to encourage bigger films or smaller ones. It could give more support to the less popular theaters operating at the fringes of the system, or it could more heavily reward the theaters that are most attractive to cinema goers. All of this could be done simply by treating films the way the UK treats healthcare care, as a public good, free at the point of use, funded in a sophisticated way. Now, imagine if we did this with other parts of the economy. Perhaps the universities should also be funded through an algorithm that punishes them for overemphasizing the most lucrative kinds of careers. We could prevent the universities from shifting more and more resources toward professional degrees by tying some of their funding to their support for the humanities. The trouble is that the public is unlikely to support such an algorithm that is designed to help the humanities because the public sees the humanities as a waste of money. Is this because the public is culturally decrepit? I don't think it is. While popular culture has fallen into an abyss, many ordinary people still maintain a robust set of values. I think the public rightly observes that the humanities are increasingly full of people who don't really care about improving their lives, who make little effort to use their degrees to make any kind of positive social difference. Instead, they are focused on attracting grant money from wealthy benefactors. These wealthy benefactors have insipid priorities, and the need to attract money to departments gradually turns many humanities academics into sycophants for oligarchs. This puts us in in a bit of a catch-22. It is because the universities that have been marketized that the humanities have become rubbish. But now that they are rubbish, it is difficult to imagine the public voting to support a better version of them. Perhaps the universities have crossed a Rubicon and are beyond saving, but I think there are still at least some areas where the public might be willing to fund artistic and intellectual work and that some kind of public algorithm might be part of how we do that. How about an arts and entertainment service free at the point of use?
2: <laughs> very interesting. I love that. You you basically uh, answered my question about how we redistribute <laughs> beauty in a way. <laughs> um, Tried to. Yeah. No, no, it's, it's very good. I think um, actually um, Badiou in his Rhapsody for the Theatre has a similar suggestion about theatre tickets. I can't remember the exact details, but he he suggests that the French state, for example, should basically make theatre attendance kind of mandatory or compulsory for school children like four times a year or something or give them vouchers or, you know, there's a sort of real sense in which he wants to do something similar. Although yours is much more, um, uh, you know, worked out, I think.
0: <laughs> Laid back, much less coercive than that. <laughs> yes.
2: I Yes. No, no, I agree. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, redistribution also at the point of, um, financing films, which I'm sure is something that Helen has a lot of thoughts about.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting what you're saying. F- firstly, film is an interesting one because already um, it's highly unionised, especially in the states in terms of crew. So, part of the reason why you know it's so expensive to make a film is that, but also that there are a lot of people because you have a um, obviously in any kind of business system, there's very few rules at the top and many more. Elsewhere, So you have a lot of people earning nothing, trying to be in these tiny positions. And then there's a lot of um, well-paid uh, crew jobs. So it's a very interesting one. It's interesting as well, because um, I have a real, um, not massively thought through um, set of ideas, but semi thought through set of ideas about the way in the UK films are financed and the role of the Quote unquote state, uh, particularly in um, the careers of that set of, cr- what, what do you call them? Creatives, uh, people who want to enter into those few jobs at the top of the pyramid. And one has to basically now go through this system. And the tie of state to capital, which is why I think this, that situation is particularly problematic, more problematic than the raw, um, Uh, what would you say, like the bare market system of the states, the state tied to capitalist problems. So this is potentially a solution where it's not tied to profit um, necessarily per se. I mean, because what we have now is there are certain things like um, a certain government body that finances certain artistic projects that we're talking about. There are certain things that films have to do, including have potentially sets of quote-unquote progressive ideas, which are... Market capital corporatist ideas, masquerading obviously because everything does become a masquerade as emancipatory ideas. So that's highly problematic in that in the way we have sort of like the NGO industrial complex can be highly problematic. But this is an interesting, very different thing, which I I do also that there is there isn't uh, oversight certainly in a in a system that I know very well, and I hope I'm not going to be told off for this, but fuck it, who cares. There's no oversight, which is a massive problem. There's no people to be qualified to oversee. So a public algorithm could be an interesting thing. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it, everything, every problem, every, um, every system has its issues, but it's a very interesting thought. It's a very interesting one, I must say.
0: Yeah, content neutral as opposed to those arts councils that pick stuff that they think is good. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and I, I think it's it's right. I mean, what's happened with the kind of Arts Council money, and lots of people talk about this, is because they're looking for particular quotas for particular things, then everything sort of has to present itself increasingly in one direction. And you end up with work that is, yeah, overwhelmingly identity-based because, in a way, that's what maps onto the bureaucracy of the form, Yeah. not because, in a way, that's the work that, you know, should or needs to be made. Um and you know in a way what yeah what you have is is a kind of horrible prism like capital is the prism through which this sort of um yeah, the bureaucracy of identity then gets kind of performed, and I mean, I think I think one of the issues that that is brought out in the Scruton um, Eagleton debate, and it does relate to the, the the situations that universities in the UK found themselves in, which and you know I was obviously in arts and humanities, I was very involved in the student struggles, I was very involved in the kind of campaign to uh, prevent the fee increase and to stop arts and humanities um, having their funding cut, which which got cut a hundred funding from the government if you remember and one of the issues that people had was defending the value of the arts and humanities because in a, and in a way this this, this deb- debate is very symptomatic of the reasons why that was very difficult because once you have the kind of marketization of arts and humanities. Um, And you don't actually have a strong conservative culture. Like paradoxically, had we had a strong conservative culture where you had lots of academics standing up and saying the value of the arts and humanities addresses these eternal verities, it speaks to the very soul of humanity, you know, tradition is important, and so on. Um, We would have actually maybe had more of a case, because what we did have was lots of left wing academics going, "Uh, I've got no basis on which I value anything. Um, I just Mm -hmm. think arts and humanities is good, but I can't really define it Define why um, we 're now having to, to put things in terms of financial terms, so everyone 's scrabbling around to try and say, Oh well, art, the arts and humanities produce economic value somehow, and people are drawing upon things like cool Britannia and you know the idea that Britain is this great island that you can come and study fashion and pop music and you know and and putting everything in this completely commercial and frankly embarrassing way. Whereas actually, had we had a, a kind of pantheon of reactionary, conservative um, uh, defenders of literature and the arts and humanities, we would have been in a better position. I, I see that now, in retrospect.
1: <laughs> but, but do you not think that the concern, the whole, the, the, it's sort of this dialectical thing where, precisely because these people don't exist, because everyone's just become a capitalist, like, the right tied itself to to the market, so they they have themselves to blame, you know.
2: Yes, I mean and that does actually come up briefly in the discussion, which is that there isn't there wasn't true conservatism. There, there's a little discussion about Thatcher, and <laughs> and Eagleton kind of says, "Well, you were against Thatcher," and 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 sort of um, um, Scruton says, "Well, yes, sort of, well, well, but now I've grown up, and you know, and uh, but but in a way, he also says that." It, it wasn't really properly conservative, right? Free market yes, capitalism isn't, isn't yeah. conservatism, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's true. I mean, conservatism is, um, you know, if you read Burke and others, very, very slow, micro-manoeuvres. It's the preservation of tradition. It's the inheritance of um, place in society. It's not that there's no social mobility, but it is... I mean, Burke does say you can't be a hairdresser and become the prime minister and things like this, um, for sure. Um, But I think the real thing is this... this um, slowness of change, because that the, for Burke, when he looks over at the French Revolution and he sees all this stuff happening way too quickly, and he says, "Oh my God, you can't do this. You can't put these ideas in motion and turn bricks into like explosives. Um, you're going to destroy everything, and there's going to be a huge backlash. You can't just go around saying that everyone's equal. You know, there's universality. Everyone's related to one another. Everyone is everyone else's brother somehow. You know, this is going to overturn everything, and that you know, and then you end." Up in the the terror, um, and so so Burke's conservatism, this very slow, blah, 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 step by step, it does relate to things like the common law, which is a you know a great tradition. However, you want to use the word great, but it did, it really is truly m- astonishing that we have this legal system um, for hundreds of years that basically works the same way. And it would be actually preservationism, not conservatism. This is why I think there's a slightly. It's like confusion. When people think about conservatism now, they think free market capitalists, they think greedy, and they're right to do so. Because if you look at the current Tory government, you see corruption, immorality in every sense. You see people who are giving contracts to people they know. You see people who don't have any virtue, they don't practice any kind of, uh, I don't know, tradition. They're not, you know, they're not good people, fundamentally, and they're just greedy and individualistic and selfish and they cut the foreign aid budget and so on but this isn't actually i i want to say like true conservatism has never been tried
1: <laughs> but i do like this word traditionalism i i had a very traditional upbringing as people can probably hear and i and because precisely because of the issue i wouldn't necessarily say it was conservative at all in the way that the conservative like at all, the the people from my tr- traditional upbringing not all, obviously, but you get a much more collectivist. What I would deem a, a true socialism, in a way. But it's, it's hard. It's I do feel like all of these terms are so difficult because, yeah, I wouldn't use the word conservative because of all the connotations that come with it. I do use the word left, but I have a different interpretation of the word left. But it is. It's ironic, as you say, you get these traditionalists. Who, <laughs> You, the, and I hate the word humanism as well, because I think it's very fraught. But the do you can recognize in this, I don't even know if it's a set of ideas or anything, but like there's a lot of good to it.
0: G.A. Cohen wrote a bit about there being a space for a certain kind of conservatism that is compatible with an otherwise economically left-wing or Marxist perspective. Uh, I'm also reminded of, of Tocqueville's reception of the French Revolution, where Tocqueville makes the argument... That France got stuck in this cycle between anarchism and despotism, where the attempt to change everything all at once uh, creates so much instability that people get to a point where they just want stability and they don't care what the price of that stability is. So they embrace some kind of despotic Caesar figure, right? And then that despotic figure becomes so difficult to bear and so enormously uh, stultifying that they completely reject the despotism and go into a new cycle of revolution. And so France goes back and forth between these hyper-radical constitutions that don't work and these hyper-absolutist constitutions that don't work, swinging between regime types, each of which produces its antithesis. And I think that there's a a point to be made here about priorities. When, When we decide that we need to make a change, it's very important to decide what is the change that we need? And what other kinds of changes would potentially get in the way of that just by being too much change, just by being more change than people can take? And I think one of the things which really afflicts the contemporary left is an inability to prioritize in a sensible way. There's this thought that you need to be for all of the changes, and you need to be for all of them all at once, and you have to prioritize all of them. And if you say, well, this first or that first, then you're a bad person. So you can't be you know, class first right? Uh, that that would be wrong. So you have to be somehow for all of the changes all at once in a completely unstrategic kind of, of way. And if you're not, then morally you're bad and, and you shouldn't be part of the left anymore. And that's how we seem to be thinking or I, I, I'm not even comfortable using the term thinking to describe that process. It's more like a kind of cathartic belching <laughs> that goes on.
1: The, the, the really tragic thing about this apolitical diarrhea is that it's so conducive to the market. Like, it really is, which is why we are getting, you know, Comrade Bezos type shit, because it's, like, the the instability, the change is fucking catnip. And that's not to say that change and instability isn't good. I mean... Instability—that's a bad word. I mean, that the change and and progress isn't good, but it, it's 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 like it's like it's like the it's like the magical situation to increase inequality and make the situation worse. But precisely because, as you say, we're not thinking properly. We we aren't thinking. We aren't reading it. It's a question of reading. It's just reading the symptoms correctly etc etc etc
2: but this is why I think everything has become so reactive and so immediate and social media obviously plays a huge part in this you know like there's some controversy or like 10 controversies a day and 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 one of the issues really is I mean you know even in my lifetime of my brief it, it, you know attempt to try to improve things <laughs> in my own way in relation to working with activist groups or whatever it it was within a particular situation, right? It was on the ground, it was in relation to particular court cases, particular protests, particular relations to the police and whatever. And so it was situated. It had a base, It, you know, and, and this is what's, what's um, missing or what's disappeared is this kind of situated um, politics, whether we're talking about unions or, um, you know, I don't know organizing strikes or protests or picket picket lines these are all in particular places and now there's no particular place every that's why everything has to be ideologically deranged and simultaneous because it's not materially positioned any anymore it's simply
1: you know a i mean it's a negative utopia it's a dystopian yeah, cloud totally totally and 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 it's a storm cloud and i think this relates to something that Benjamin was saying the other week about like a lot of, for instance, ideas that have been co-opted by secondary tertiary readers and students in US and UK, and now potentially even French and all the other university settings. It's like they, that writing was coming out of a particular place with a particular background. Like the original text, which I completely condone, by the way, you know, and and they, they're they not, you know, they, they, they apply to something. They're not just they have become commodities that can be sort of stripped of anything and made to made to mean whatever is convenient for the latest fucking trend.
0: And I think also there's a point to be made about precarity. Uh, precarity is often the thing that drives people to get involved with the left in the first place. And I think this is something that the professional class leaders of the left do not understand. People are getting in, in, involved in the left because they feel precarious, because they feel like there's an insufficient amount of stability in their lives. The principal value which the Eastern Bloc sold to citizens living in in Eastern Europe was stability. If you came out of an Eastern university and you had a degree in a particular thing, the government would make sure that you ended up in a job that was involved with that particular degree. And there's old pieces of Soviet propaganda that show an American who has a PhD and is now a waiter because he has no job, because the system doesn't make sure that the people who get educated in a given field end up with a job in that field. And how destabilizing and unpredictable that is. Well, in the Eastern Bloc, you'll have stability and predictability. You won't be able to freely jump around and do whatever you want, but you'll know what's going to happen next week, next month, next year. And I I would never suggest, and I don't think anybody is suggesting, that we should go to a system with that level of, of rigidity. But A big part of what people are reacting to over the last 50 years is that this system has leaned too far into creative destruction, too far into precarity, and now you've got left-wingers who are partnering up with Silicon Valley in a tech sector which is entirely about more of that, more instability, more disruption, and that's not what's going to attract people to a broad mass political movement what initially drew people to Bernie Sanders is here's some economic bases for security that we can give you. Let's make sure that you're not chained up by student debt or by the cost of college. Let's make sure that you're not chained up by health care. Let's make sure that you you have enough stability that you can participate in a system which is otherwise open. And we've completely gotten away from that. The the left has run all the way off into a kind of, of break everything, move fast and break things, la la land, which is indistinguishable from the libertarian right. And that's
1: precisely, you say, disrupt, tech disrupt, you know, and, and move fast and break things. That is the slogan of Silicon Valley, you know, and it is, this is the complete tragedy. And uh, to go back to what you were saying, Nina it's like, it seems to have been ideologically within the sort of ideological ether of today that we associate anything to do with stability and certainty and continuity with the right, which is just its just not true. That just doesn't have to be the case at all. And it literally, I mean, it's its the ideological thing. It's like the automatic feeling that we will have, which is market ideology. Like it's a lie.
2: Yeah, completely. And I think that there's something about preservation, which is goes beyond left and right. You know, like when we talk, I, I think of this story, like I was in Bosnia um, a few years ago and I have quite a few friends in Bosnia and I go, I've been there a few times. And I met this woman, or she gave a talk, and she was in Sarajevo during the war, and she worked for the museum. They had a museum in Sarajevo, and it happens to have one of the rarest Bible codexes in the world. It's a priceless document, basically. It's a kind of text that that, that, that happens to be in Sarajevo. And during the war, obviously, it's extremely difficult to um, to protect valuable objects like this, right? They become also weapons of war because people steal them. But, you know, if you've got no protection in the museum, people can just take whatever they want, right? Like it's a huge problem. Like looting is a major issue in war. We 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 know this, right? And and what she said that they did was that the museum volunteers basically covered the codex with their body, right? They had 24-hour watch over this object, this cultural object of great value. And they literally protected it, like, with their lives. And I was, like, I was so moved by this. I find it moving just to, to say about it, like, that the, the people would be willing to, you know, risk risk their lives. You know, we'd, they're dealing with people, gangsters who wanted to steal the the Codex, you know, people who would just kill them to take it. They wouldn't even care, you know. But this, this kind of... Um, commitment to tradition like the fact that in a way they wanted to preserve this this object you know i was just astonished by
1: well do you know what mina this is this is the thing that i'm like hashtag guilty because i'm like a film right that's a film that would be an amazing film let's make a film out of that just because of the emotion and all the other things but that's that's yeah so there you go hashtag market me although i don't actually make films (laughs) to make money uh i don't make films to make money i say quote unquote um but yeah, they're so moving. That's amazing. No, no,
2: and it's but but it, you
1: know it makes me think of all of the the kind of um,
2: objects and and you know of course contestation over who should have them like the Elgin Marbles for example or the fact that yeah. you know most things in in British museums and European museums are are technically looted right they may be preserved but they're technically looted and so on I mean endless discussions about this but. Basically, I don't know. I always think of things like Stonehenge and Avebury, right? These prehistoric and Silbury Hill and West Kennet Long Barrow and all of these other extraordinary, unique prehistoric, often or historical things. We don't even really understand the purpose of them necessarily, although we can speculate and we can we can you know d- we can discuss and archaeologists can research and think about it and so on. But but the, the thing that increasingly strikes me, the kind of older I get, is the you know the point about preserving these things is is in a way not for any other reason other than these things exist, right? It, it, and actually, they're very easy to to destroy. And as Scruton makes this point too, and, and in a way, I'm quite close to Scruton's point on some of this is how, how to put it. Like it's it's incredibly easy to destroy objects. Okay, we might have reproductions of Shakespeare, like it's it's unlikely that we'll lose all of the Shakespeare texts, right? In the in the electronic age. Right. But there are things and this would even go for the statues. This is part of the the problem with if you take down statues, there's a sense in which you are also doing um, uh, the job of uh, property developers for them. Right. If you make everything the same, if you remove every unique object from its place, however awful the object is, however much you might want to oppose it, however much you might want to destroy it, you are basically clearing the ground to make a completely homogenous, um less space, that which will only be filled by, you know, yet more chain stores, yet more apartments, yet more, you know, I, I don't know, it, it's, maybe I'm just con- demented about this. But I, there's something about the very specific nature of things in specific places. that, in a way, we have to be extraordinarily careful
1: about removing. So it makes me think of a lot of things, obviously, that the, the self sacrifice of of throwing yourself over like a a text during wartime that ties back a little bit to to dying for culture and the idea of terrorism and I was going to say when you were talking about it in your intervention at the beginning that like obviously what's the difference between a terrorist and uh somebody who is sponsored by corporations you know (laughs) that's the difference you know um uh but but um so can say yeah no uh, this this is the you know the dialectic of capitalism that capitalist unfreedom the free market generates a sense of terrible unfreedom the individuality and particularity and constant um self-defining and delineation creates an utter homogeneity you know we the free market does not create you know this this wonderful free market of ideas where we all have free to make our best work not at all it's it's actually the opposite you know we are reduced to the precarity that turns us into we, we are all, we are all rendered the same. And ha- like, mm. what, what is art but a cry of difference? Yeah.
0: Thinking about the, the fetishizing of life, you know, any given person, no matter how brilliant, will only be brilliant for a relatively short period of time. And whatever it is they make during that time, that's the thing that potentially might be around to help somebody else in the future. And I can imagine a scenario in which some older person would would very quite happily lay down their life to protect something that they made because especially once you're a bit older you know that you're not going to make a lot of things that are quite that good uh, and the ability of that thing you made to do good might greatly outweigh the your remaining ability to do good in whatever time you would otherwise have and sometimes when things get destroyed, I, I think about the people who made those things and how they would feel if if they knew that. Uh, I think for a lot of them, especially toward the end of their lives, destroying those things would be worse than killing them. Something that gets me uh, when I watch Agora, that film with Rachel Wise about the destruction of the Serapeum in Alexandria and the ripping down of the temple and the burning of all of the scrolls and you think about every every time one of those—and it's true for so many ancient writers that at some point somebody burned the last copy that we had of something that they did or, or burned part of it so that only little bits come down to us. And just what a, a flippant thing that was and how sad they'd be if they knew that we only got that one bit. Every time I read any ancient writer and, and I run into the part where we run out of what we have of theirs, I go— Oh, if only they were here they would tell me, oh, but there's more. There's more.
1: Yeah, it's a very moving thought, isn't it? But obviously, um under capitalism, you know, we're not we're not faced with um immediate uh, the immediate violence of war, where let's say um something might be destroyed by, by bombs in our in our current situation, but there is there is a much more subtle and gradual violence where we are barred from, prevented from. Positive generative creation, little bit by little bit, and those who could be saying something immensely helpful and insightful and wise and beautiful are are barred either through uh limited resources or the siphoning off of resources from them or from de platforming and what have you we do there is immense violence it's a very subtle violence, but there is immense violence
0: it's it's the violence of presentism, I think, the the thought that the present matters infinitely more than anything else, and that whatever the attitude is of present people, that that shouldn't just join the, the tradition and be one of the perspectives in it, but that it should have the right to obliterate what comes before. And I think about even the texts that survive from antiquity. There are so many people who are hell-bent on reading those texts from their present point of view and on producing readings of them which exclude the possibility of of other views and more traditional views and this kind of uh, domination of the literature by people who insist that you have to read texts in some particular way that's fashionable in the present yeah and so even the texts we have we can't read them in a in a wide variety of ways we get more and more limited in what we can do with what we have
2: I know. I mean, the arrogance of presentism is astonishing. It's like the idea that human beings before us didn't really have anything good to say because, I don't know, their societies were more violent or something, according to us. Or, you know, they had some practice that we thought we now think is reprehensible or whatever. Um, I mean, it's just it's just astonishing, really. And I think, again, it's, it's it is partly this suspicion of the right in a way it's a suspicion of history that that in a way conservatism is tied up with history and that the left is always about yeah breaking things and the and the present and um undoing past injustice somehow or differentiating but but what the problem is that's become not not the desire to understand injustice but rather simply to separate oneself from it as if by um by magic mm-hmm. as if you could say well I, well, yes I'm a human being but I'm not like previous human beings who were all misguided and stupid and wrong and had terrible beliefs you know as if you can do that as if you can separate the dark you know even in yourself the dark side from the light or the darkness of history from you know I don't know the the, the neon strip light in the mall of the present or whatever.
1: No totally it's the Hegelian beautiful soul the uh, paranoid, schizoid—you know—it's <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I did I did my little bit at the beginning about um, one question from the audience, which, um, you know, people can watch it, <laughs> but but the reason why I did it is because that question um, was almost, as you said, it was almost looking looking at history twenty twelve before everything sort of got completely crazy. And the question, I thought, was really emblematic of where things will go and where things have gone. Um, And there is and it's understandable because of the kinds of, you know, precarity issues and anxiety issues that all the things that were changing at that time, like, you know, student loans, et cetera, et cetera, have led to um, within those who have turned to the left of maybe a certain age. Um and so maybe that explains the the toxic certainty and the toxic um arrogance really that it, that that we know everything yeah and obviously there is a lot that's known we know what hasn't worked we know that the things that led up to 2008 were terrible and we know that the student loan idea was a shit idea but also there are there are there are many other um people other than people who were students during that time who have suffered immensely like um, people who aren't paid enough and have to take out payday loans and all these other things, and many different issues through history, and many um, things you know that we don't even look at as to why those things really did happen, other than they they happened and they were wrong.
2: Yeah, I think to- "toxic certainty" is an excellent phrase. I think we should use this one. We should meme this one into widespread usage because no, I mean it, it really does uh, occur to me. This is this is happening kind of constantly and. You know, opposed to that would be something like epistemic humility, you know, which would be to say, look, I don't know everything and I know that I don't know <laughs> certain things, not to be Rumsfeldian about it. But, you know, that that, that also and that the one should wait as well before pronouncing on things, you know, the the rush to to come up with the right line, which usually devolves onto political lines anyway, even when we're not necessarily talking about something that should be politicized, like medical questions mm-hmm. or you know questions about the virus or or have all just gone straight down political lines more or less yeah you know it's it's it there's there's not really a separate discourse of well what's actually happening what's the reality of this virus what is you know it, there's no neutral epidemiology going on there's there's pure politics it's just if you're left you think this if you're right you think this and as if there isn't somehow a third thing which is you know, what's actually
0: happening. (laughs) I think that a lot of this toxic certainty is bound up with progressivism. And progressivism really defines how people are using the terms left and right these days, where the left is someone who is certain that we're going uh, to the right place, or in the right direction. And therefore, don't worry about these things that make you uneasy, because eventually, it's all going to work out. We're, we're, involved in some kind of progress and on the other side sets of people who oppose progress because they fetishize various things from the past uh, and and therefore fail to see that we are on some kind of of progress coaster that goes in some kind of of positive direction and so all of politics gets defined by how do you feel about this movement do you recognize that the movement is inevitable and good or are you someone who resists the movement in various ways because you're reacting to it and therefore reactionary. And because it's just about whether we're going to assume that the movement is good or not, there's very little sophistication in the discussion. Either you are on board with assuming that the movement is good in all of its aspects, or you are someone who opposes the movement and therefore you must oppose it in all of its aspects because it's all treated as something which all goes together, is all so bound up with itself that either you're for the movement or you're against the movement. You're progressive or you're reactionary. And that's how left and right are now being defined. The left is progressive and the right is reactionary. And I hate those ways of defining the left and the right. I find them so useless and so unhelpful and so two-dimensional.
1: Totally, And it, like... <sighs> I, I always I harp on about this definition, this, like, idealised definition of what politics should be, um, and that, you know, the left position is about contradiction and everything, but, like, the way you delineate, Nina, about the treatment of the virus, like, genuinely people are totally fucking, I'm totally confused, because all you get is a right, you know, is a quote-unquote right, or a quote-unquote, like a progressive or a reactionary um, response to it, and I think confusion really that's where the p- politics should be you know that's where that's really where the responsibility of the state should be to 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 deal with the difficulty the contradiction the uncertainty that's science science is you know the scientific method is leaving expectations at the door and discovering you know <laughs> through 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 observation and yeah, it, it's the, the virus thing. It's just I, I, I don't even know anymore. You know, you get to the stage where like, what the fuck? I mean, we talked a little bit about the Delta variant last week. I have absolutely no knowledge about anything. I don't understand it. I don't know what's happening. I, I'm very uh, skeptical of um, the very politicized, quote unquote, um, ways of dealing with it. it. It's. I think it's a shit show.
0: Now there's something. Of, of God's plan in, in this idea of progress. I used to say there is some kind of divine plan, and, and it's all going to work out. But we've just come up to about the hour mark, so I think we should probably call it for this episode today. We are going to do a B side. That B side is going to be on the political economy of the paramedia the podcasts, the magazines, the independent stuff, the stuff that is uh, not. Necessarily corporate, but also not necessarily uh, meaningfully resisting anything. Uh, Stuff in that kind of space. Stuff kind of like what we're doing here. Uh, So we hope you'll join us over there. And if you want to hear that episode, please come and support us on Patreon. We've had a a bit of an uptick uh, since I mentioned the previous week that. We don't have enough money yet to cover the costs. We're still not there, although we have, we have seen a noticeable improvement since I mentioned that, and we're getting closer, but we still need some more cash to be able to sustain the pace at which we're putting these things out. So I do hope that if you haven't started supporting the show yet, you might consider doing so. All right. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.
1: Bye. Thank you. Bye.